Uh, thank you for being uh, here this morning. We're continuing to look in uh, Ruth chapter 1. Uh, so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 1. We are at the last section of chapter 1. If this was a play, uh, if you were looking at this as a, you know, a story, this would be um, Act 1, Scene Three. If you're following along through through the book of Ruth, you know the first few chat, first few verses. She and her family goes to sojourn in Moab, and instead of sojourning there, they settle there for about ten years. And then, when all is lost, Naomi leaves Moab to return back. That's called the return. And then today, in this final section of chapter one, she arrives. Uh, So we're going to read this passage together. Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. The text says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Father, we thank you for your word here. We thank you for these verses that describe a homecoming of sorts. Even if in the midst of this homecoming, there is great bitterness, there is great pain, there is a tremendous acknowledgement of terrible circumstances. Circumstances that Naomi doesn't know quite how to deal with other than just to express her bitterness. I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we process uh, the information here, as you speak to us by your Holy Spirit, and what we can do when someone we love is in the middle of a bitter circumstance, or when we ourselves are in the midst of bitter circumstances. How should we process that, and to what should we do? Uh, How should we hope in you? I pray that you would use this word. I pray that you would uh, bless it, that you would... Uh, speak to us by your word and by your servant in hopes that, um, that we can hear from you and experience you today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you understand what's happened. Uh, Naomi has decided to return back to Israel. She could have just stayed in Moab. She could have remained bitter. She could have remained in her circumstances, in the pain of her uh, situation. She could have just done all that in Moab, but she got to the end of herself and, and, and wanted to return back to her people, back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, back to her God. And, and as that ended, an amazing thing happened. Ruth, the Moabitess, had a profession of faith. She gave her life to Christ. She was converted, in a sense, in the Old Testament way that that happens. And before we gloss over that, I want you just to see what an incredible miracle this is. Naomi, in the midst of her worst circumstances that she could ever imagine, 
The loss of her husband, the loss of her son, the loss of another son, the absence of grandchildren. In the worst circumstances ever, something beautiful happens. Ruth is converted. Ruth gives her life to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament way, and and we can see her conversion in her declaration of faith. In verse 16, she says, Don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. That seems like a commitment to um, Naomi, her mother-in-law. But she follows that statement of commitment saying, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. That's the statement of faith. And it's confirmed in verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Now that statement there says, long after Naomi dies, Ruth says, even once you're dead and gone, I'm not going to go back to Moab. Even once this commitment is fulfilled, I'm not going back to Moab. I'm going to stay right here. I'm not going back to Chemosh, the God of my people. I'm staying right here with you. Your people are now my people. Your God is now my God. That is a statement of Old Testament faith. Ruth is declaring that she is converting. There was no mechanism for conversion in the Old Testament. There was, no, um, there was no immigration policy for someone from another country to come in and to stamp some papers and to come and live their faith out um, in Israel. There was a prohibition that a Moabite could not uh, intermarry and be a part of the congregation of Israel for 10 generations. But that's, that's uh, null and void for Ruth because she converts. She becomes a believer. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. And most importantly, your God will be my God. And then she brings the seriousness of her commitment and her covenant commitment of faith to God saying, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me. That's a commitment. That's a statement of her faith. And I don't want us to move too far because I don't want you to ever underestimate uh, the beauty that God does in the midst of some of the worst of circumstances. Some of the most beautiful things that God does are, are in the soil of suffering. People that get baptized often get baptized and stand up here and say, it was under these conditions that I came to myself and I gave my life to Jesus Christ and redemption starts where there's a death, when there's something terrible happening. We should never underestimate what God also can do through one conversion. Through Ruth's conversion, she marries Boaz, and then they have Obed, and then they have Jesse, and then they have King David, and even Jesus himself comes from this line of Ruth's conversion. Never underestimate what God can do through one conversion. It's often uh, just one person converting in a family or a church that can spark a glorious gospel movement, Tony Merida describes. He says one conversion often leads to multiple conversions. Sometimes it is through the conversion of just one person that a church can be reawakened to the power of the gospel. Sometimes just one new believer brings renewal to the long-time saints. Ruth is converted, and it's a beautiful thing. But this passage describes something different. This passage describes the fact that Naomi seems to miss that. Naomi doesn't even understand. She doesn't even see it. After Ruth's conversion and statement of commitment, 
Ruth 1.18, the Hebrew literally says that Ruth didn't say another word to her. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She didn't speak to her again. Naomi returns, but she still has some work to do, and she still can't see the glory of what God is doing in the midst of her suffering and pain. So my main point that I would like to get across uh, over the next little while is, how do we process our complaints against God? What do you do when your circumstances are bitter? You don't know what to do with that bitterness. You don't know where to put it. You don't know how to describe it. You don't know if you should feel it. You don't know how to lament. What do you do with this? When we're upset with God for the way in which he has allowed our situations to unfold. And we have to just kind of sit in that mess for a minute. Because the truth is the sovereignty of God is a beautiful attribute of God. And we often glory in it. When things are going great and and we can say, I'm blessed by the Lord and and God is good. It's easier to say that when everything's going great, right? When we celebrate the sovereignty of God, when when the boundary lines have fallen for you in pleasant places, the psalmist describes. But, But sometimes to acknowledge the sovereignty of God in the midst of terrible circumstances is a greater statement of faith and a greater trust in God than anything else. I can remember just even a few years ago walking through just the death within me of a lot of things and mowing my yard and and having these kind of prayers where I could, all I could say is I have to acknowledge that that my position is in, I'm just in a bad spot. And, and, and I have to acknowledge that I don't have to be here because you have the power to change this. Have you ever felt that way? When you have to acknowledge that, that God is sovereign and he's good and he's, and he can, instantly change your circumstances or he can instantly change you to adapt to your circumstances to have joy and worship but but neither of those things happen and so in those moments you have to say i acknowledge your sovereignty and yet here i am and it's a bittersweet sort of sharp edge to that when like martha and like mary when lazarus died and they look at jesus and they say if if only you had been here this this wouldn't have happened When we find ourselves in those situations, I want us to see from Naomi's story how bitterness and the sovereignty of God come together and something beautiful can happen. So let's look back at the text. Verse 19 says the two of them, Ruth, the Moabitess, the young daughter-in-law, and her older mother-in-law, Naomi, are returning They come to Bethlehem, and when they walk into town, it says the whole town was stirred. It was energized. It was uh, agitated because of them. And all the women said, is this Naomi? Now remember, she left a decade ago. Her name means pleasant or sweetie pie if you're in the South, right? This is sweetie honey or whatever. This is cutie pie, sweetie Naomi and pleasant Naomi. And that's, she was married to Elimelech, right? The all Israel couple. His name means my God is my king and her name means pleasant. And they're in the house of bread and, and all these good things are happening when they're married and there's optimism and joy and everything starts really well for them. But you know what happened? They had a child named Malon whose name means weak. And they had a child named Kilion, whose name means sickly. And it just describes the pain of the famine. And to escape the famine, 
Elimelech, my God is my king, takes Pleasant, his wife, Naomi, and they go to enemy territory to escape God's sovereignty, and they experience nothing but heartbreak and hardship. Just think of the roller coaster that they went on. They have sons, weak and sickly, maybe giving some insight into their condition, the hardship on their family. They experience a famine, things get low. Then they go to Moab, and there's some there's some uh, change in their circumstances. Things are good for a while. The famine is not as bad there. They find bread. They find work. Things seem to be good. And maybe they left Israel. Maybe they left and there was a bit of, uh, who knows what their tone was like as they left, but we're going somewhere else. We're not staying here. We're leaving and we're going to find bread. We're going to find work. We're going to find a better place for our family over there in Moab. If God's not going to take care of us here, we're going somewhere else. Is something along the lines of what they might have thought or might have said. I don't want to put words in their mouth, but, but they left God's people, God's covenant, and they went somewhere else into enemy territory. And this was a sinful thing they did. And in the process of that, they think, we'll just go sojourn there for a while, but they, they settle there, and then they end up spending a decade there. Elimelech dies, Malon and Kilion, they get married, that's good, but they don't have any grandchildren, they don't have any children, and so for Naomi, you know, there's, maybe she's saying, when are we going to have children? When are we going to have grandchildren in this house? And, and that's another down thing, because then the boys both die, And so Naomi is in the lowest spot possible when she hears that the Lord visits His people and provides for them. And in the midst of that, Ruth gives her, makes this great statement of faith. But then she walks in, and I imagine that when she walks into the place, the whole town being stirred because of her, she's aged. Have you ever felt old? I spoke at at a college retreat for Arcadia University for their Christian fellowship in, uh, in Tannersville at a, at a camp. I did it for seven or eight years in a row. And, and every time I came, I would share my testimony. And, and every year I would feel a little bit older, a little bit older. Finally, one time I said, how many of you were born, you know, when I was converted and no, no one had been born? I was converted in 91 and they weren't even born till, ni- till 2001. Like back in the 90s, you were converted back in 1900s, um, making me feel like super old. Um, Naomi feels old, I think. They, they, they ask her, you know, is this, is this her? You understand that tra- her tragic situation may, is, may have aged her beyond a decade. They don't recognize her. And Naomi walks in with guilt, with shame, with pain, with bitterness. She's had to swallow her pride and she's wallowing in misery and they say, isn't this pleasant, Naomi? But look, look at what she says. Look at verse 20. She says to them, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. That's what those two names mean. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. There she sits in the bitterness of her circumstances saying, don't, don't call me that anymore. My name is now Mara. That's how you should address me. Call me bitter. So we see that even though she made the return 
for Moab. That's a victory, right? Isn't that a positive thing? She, she didn't have to be in Israel. She could have just stayed in Moab as a bitter person, but she made the return. That's a, that's a victory. She could have lived and died forever away from God's presence and His covenant people and His covenant promises. And even though returning is a big part of the work, there's still more work to be done in her soul. Ian DeGuid notices that her body may have made the journey home, but her spirit was far from restored. Also notice that she didn't return in humility and brokenness and contrition over her own responsibility. She has problems with God. She doesn't seem to bear any personal responsibility, even though she and Elimelech left together. And she had the choice to return after Elimelech's death. But she died and her sons engaged in these forbidden marriages, but she stayed. But she has problems with God. She has four specific indictments against God. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. He has brought me back empty, number two. Number three, He has testified against me. And number four, He has brought calamity upon me. Many of us look at those circumstances and... We have to ask this question, and I've been asked this question many times as a pastor. Uh, We have many other former pastors in our church, and no doubt they've been asked these questions before. Is Naomi being punished for her sins? Has she done something in her past that God is now punishing her and heaping punishment on top of her? The gospel declares that your punishment for sin was taken by Jesus Christ on the cross. God does not punish you for your sins. I want you to hear that really clearly. God does not punish you now for the sins that you've committed in your past. Your present circumstances are not punishment for sins. The gospel says that Jesus Christ took our punishment that we deserved on himself, on his body, on the tree, so that we might have life. We might have new life. So erase that from your theology. Erase that from your thinking. God is not punishing you for past sins currently. When Jesus died on the cross, He took that wrath on Himself, and the punishment that we deserved for sins are born on Christ. He bore our punishment on Himself in his body, on the tree. And Jesus brings a right relationship with God and completely removes the penalty and wrath for sin. Do you understand that? It's bad theology to say that God's punishing me for my sin. So then you might ask, then how do you explain what Naomi is going through? Why does it feel like God is punishing me for my sins? Why doesn't he just intervene? Scripture gives a couple of explanations for this. Let me go through three of them. Number one, I'm just speaking generally, not to Naomi's circumstance and not to your circumstance, but number one, there is just a built-in cause and effect consequence for sin and disobedience. There's just a built-in consequence for sin that does not identify itself with ultimate wrath for sin. Do you know the distinction? Galatians 6, 7 through 8, 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a person sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Do you know what that means? That means that a believer ultimately will not be held responsible to be punished for their sin. Jesus took it on the cross. But if a believer indulges in their flesh and strays from God and walks away from God for a period of time and indulges in sinful, unrepentant behavior, that behavior bears with it a natural consequence, a built-in consequence for sin. In the same way that a person who commits a crime can ask God for forgiveness and God will grant forgiveness, but that does not get them off the hook for civil punishment. There is a punishment, a built-in consequence for sin, and those consequences can feel like God's punishing you, but it's not. God disciplines those He loves, and sometimes He uses temporal, human, relational punishment as discipline to teach us the pain of sin and the pain of disobedience. Does that make sense? You understand that? And that feels ugly and that feels bad, but in the midst of that, there is redemption. There is life. There is discipline. You should feel unloved if you don't experience the discipline of God. He disciplines those He loves. And sometimes it's delivered in the form of natural consequences for sin. A second reason that Scripture explains why these things happen is that God sees and is doing more than what we see and what we do. Remember Job? Named righteous Job? Job 38, he has this long, 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 long book of Job about why why am I suffering? Why am I going through all this? Why is this happening to me? And and Job doesn't get to read Job chapter 1 and 2, right? I mean, that's, that's all written later. There's like a heavenly scene where Satan is coming to accuse God and to accuse people before God. And, and there's this heavenly thing. Bigger things are happening that Job has no understanding of. And he is in the midst of this. And so even in the midst of all of this, um, God sees and is doing more than what Job understands. And so Job finally has to just acknowledge, you are God. I don't understand, but I will trust in you. A third reason is that God works in the worst of our circumstances in ways that you can't possibly understand. How did Ruth get converted? It was through the ugliness of Naomi's situation. That's a hard pill to swallow if in someone's death and bitter circumstances, God brings redemption. Have you ever had a situation where you're personally suffering but new life is being spread to someone else and, and you, have to, you have to work that out. Why does God use my suffering to bring about life for someone else? It's a part of the carrying of our cross where Jesus' suffering and His work of carrying the cross led to His death but brings life for others. As Christ followers, we carry our crosses and often it leads us into suffering which leads to life for other people. 
That's part of our cross-burying. Romans 8.28 says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Those may not satisfy you, but there's three good reasons to hold on to hope in the midst of bitter circumstances. Now, Naomi is not there, okay? She's consumed with her own situation. She has no vision whatsoever at this point of what God is doing in her or with her personal pain and loss. She's fully bitter. In the midst of this, Ruth is completely neglected in this entire scene, right? Women don't mention her from Bethlehem. Uh, Naomi says, uh, presumably right in front of Ruth, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. He has brought calamity upon me. I went away uh, full and he brought me back empty. Right? How, did, how did Ruth feel? But she's, she's right there. She, the Lord brought you back empty. Oh, okay. Okay, I'm right here. I can hear you. She's, she's with her and R- R- Naomi doesn't see any of that. She's so blinded by her own situation that she completely misses the activity of God in her situation. Naomi overlooks Ruth's conversion and her commitment to her. She misses out on her own responsibility and her contribution to her situation. She's experiencing bitterness and her soul is completely bitter. You've probably heard these before, but bitterness has a way of twisting and gnarling a soul. When a person gives in to anger, if someone sins against them or hurts them in some way and they, they roll that over, they begin to think about that offense that's committed toward them and, and, and they refuse to receive forgiveness or to express forgiveness. And if something happens, they begin to, to maximize their pain and minimize any sort of good that's coming out of it. And they, all they see is this picture of pain. And as they hold on to their hurt, uh, you've heard this phrase, hurt people, hurt people. They can't help themselves. They're so wounded that they wound other people. If they live in that pain, if they live in that bitterness, if they live in that, something twists and gnarls their own soul and their whole viewpoint is skewed. Their judgment is clouded. All they can see is their own bitterness and their own pain. And if you live there too long, you've heard this before as well, that living in bitterness toward another person is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Because when you dwell in your own bitterness and unforgiveness, it kills you. The other person may live. They may, they may not even know the degree to which you hate them and the degree to which you're consumed by the pain They're doing fine. They're moving on. And that just contributes to your own bitterness and the own poison that you've consumed yourself. There's a remedy for this. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many people become defiled. Bitterness has a way of Uh, rooting down in your heart and then growing up and over time sprouting out of you. And Hebrews says that that bitterness springs up and it causes trouble for you. 
and it become uh, by it, many other people become defiled by your bitterness. Have you ever known a bitter person? Just, you're around them, and there's just no silver lining. There's no joy. There's just their own calamity, their own situation, their own pain, and it just overwhelms like a dark cloud. There's a remedy. Ephesians 4:31 through 32 says, "Let all bitterness and wrath and anger." and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. You see the picture of that person? They're bitter. They're filled with wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. That's what a bitter person looks like. Filled with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Paul says to the Ephesians, put that away from you and be kind tender-hearted, forgiving one another as in God Christ as in as God in Christ forgave you. That's the remedy in the gospel. Paul points them to the gospel. You can put away all that ugly stuff because in Christ you've been forgiven and with the grace that you've received because of your own sin and your own mercy and your own redemption, now you are free to give grace and mercy and redemption. Now you can fulfill Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave you. That's the beauty of the gospel. You can't give what you don't have. If you've never received grace and forgiveness, you're not going to extend grace and forgiveness. You're going to dwell in bitterness and anger and wrath and slander and malice, all those things. That's what bitterness does to us outside of the gospel. The narrator jumps in in verse 22. And the narrator tells us, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now this chapter began with a famine, and it ends with the harvest. Isn't that a beautiful statement? You could miss that. It started with a famine, ends with a harvest. That just shows you that trials and difficult circumstances, they, they're, they're not on, it's not there forever. Those things come in season and out of season. And by the grace of God, there are highs and lows, there are good times and bad times, and if you wait Sometimes those things will work themselves out in, in just the regular rhythms and routines of life. The famine came and then a harvest came. And in the midst of it, God visited his people and he provided for them. But in the midst of that, Naomi dwelt in her bitterness. Let me conclude with four application points for us. Number one, Naomi did something beautiful. We can be hard on her, but I don't want to be hard on her because she did something beautiful. She returned to her people. She could have just relocated, right? She could have, there's a lot of places in Israel she could have gone. She could have just gone to another country. She could have gone to Egypt. She could have gone to Syria. She could have gone anywhere, but she returned to her people, to her community of faith. She, she chose to process her bitterness amongst the people of God who know her best. How would you have received Naomi? Let's say somebody left our church. Over the last year, people have left our church uh, so many that we can't keep track of everybody. 
And so many new people have come to the church, leaving other churches or leaving other. There's just a whole sifting that's happening in the people of God, not just in our church and churches everywhere all around here. What would you do if somebody left our church and came back? How would you have received Naomi? Would you have been quick to point out her personal responsibility? Would you have been a snarky religious person to say something rude and sharp and convictional? Now maybe you should just remember this before you go off and do something else stupid. That's what you get for going to Moab while we stayed here in the middle of the famine and and you rejected us and went to, to, to enemy territory. May God good for you. God's paying you back for your sin. That's how some religious people treat people who leave the church. I would not call them Christ followers. Let me just personally apologize to you if in the name of Jesus, some religious person has offended you. The greatest fear I have in the church is if a humble person seeking Jesus comes into the church and meets a religious person who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't know redemption and just speaks ugly, hateful, bitter language. One of the first times I went to church, I was not a believer. I was an atheist and, and I was in desperate circumstances and some religious guy said my shirt was too wrinkled to be in church. Asked me if I slept in my shirt. Just some religious guy, not redeemed, not converted, doesn't know the grace of God. My greatest fear is that people in our community in Telford or Soderton or Sellersville or Perksy would come here hoping to find life and would just meet some snarky religious person who says, hey, you're not dressed right to be in here. What did you do? Did you just sleep in those clothes last night? You don't look right to be here and miss the gospel because the enemy places within the church uh, weeds, not wheat. That's one of my greatest fears. How would you have treated Naomi? I love the people of God. The indication that we have here is that they didn't do that. They didn't do that. You don't hear anybody saying, that's what you get for leaving. What would you have done if Naomi came? Would you grieve with her? Would you just have put your arms around her and let the tears flow and and just brought healing because she lost a, a father? a husband and two sons? Would you have given her space to lament and mourn? Are you the kind of friend who is quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry? Are you, as Ephesians 4.32 says, are you kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you? Naomi works through her bitterness in the community of faith, and she doesn't isolate herself. That's one. Another application point for us is this. Naomi had to sit. Naomi had to stew in her bitter circumstances just until God could bring some hope. She's just in it. We can't falter. She doesn't see Ruth's conversion. She doesn't see, she's not happy to see her friends. She's just, she's just in the funk. Have you ever been in the funk like that? She's, I mean, you're just in it and you don't, you don't have a good attitude. It's, nothing's positive. It's just all junk. She just has to sit there. Listen to this from Lamentations 3. And, and we're going to hang in Lamentations 3 for a minute. But, but in Lamentations 3, verse 27, 
Jeremiah says it's, it's actually good for a person that he bears this yoke in his youth. He says, let him sit in the dust. Let him sit alone in silence while these circumstances are laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust so that there may be hope. This is Lamentations 3, 27 through 33. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Sometimes we see somebody in bitter circumstances and we just want to hurry him along. Hey, hey. It's all right, let's get through this. Let's just rush through this. And we don't give people the time and the space and the ability to lament and to mourn and to process and to, to wrestle with God. And the church should be that kind of a place where we're not just trying to push people through to happy times. Let's just get, let's just get happy, right? That's not it. We can grieve together. We can lament together. We can mourn together. Uh, one of our um, days of prayer and fasting, we covered an entire night of biblically, what does it mean to lament? And we sat out here and we prayed prayers of lament and we described what it means to lament and we mourned over, particularly that day, sexual sin in our culture and in our country and the church's responsibility for fostering it. It was a, it was a time of healing, but also lamenting Great damage done in the name of Christ to a culture. Those days of prayer and fasting, we cover all these kinds of things. That's why I always urge people to participate in the community, in these in the community of faith in these days of prayer and fasting. But Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, it's it's actually good to sit in this and stew in it. He says it so that there yet may be hope. Because it just might be that you'll never fully discover hope until you sit in your junk for a minute. Sometimes God allows us to sit in a mess, even a mess that we made, until we abandon hope in anything else. Because if you want quick deliverance, it just could be that, that God will get you out of the mess you're in and you'll jump right back into another mess. That's just like us, right? Uh, you think about Second Chronicles 26, King Uzziah, it says that he was marvelously helped along. God just, just, God marvelously helped him along until he felt like he was strong. And then once he was strong, what did he do? He completely abandoned God, went in and offered fake incense on the all, took a position he wasn't supposed to do, and God struck him down. He was uh, mightily helped along until he became strong. And sometimes if you don't sit in your mess long enough, or in these difficult circumstances, you're just going to hope in something else. Something else, you, you'll take the hope that, you, that God has dashed in one situation, maybe it was a relationship, or maybe it was a circumstance, or maybe it was a job, or maybe, it was, maybe your hope was in something else, and, and you'll just, if God gets you out of that, you'll put your hope on something else, and you won't trust in God. I think about Samson. This verse came to mind in Samson. You remember Samson's story? He is supposed to beat up, he was a deliverer, a judge, he's supposed to beat up all the Philistines and deliver his people from, and he, he just didn't do a great job of it. He kept telling Delilah how to, you know, make him weak, and, and finally Delilah, he tells her the right thing, cut my hair and I'll, all my strength will be gone, and it happens. Samson had a prideful arrogance that just always thought God would just get him out of all of his troubles. He was never really broken until they, he was captured by the Philistines and they, they poked his eyeballs out, and they stuck a, a bridle on him and they, they made him, you know, a grinder. He had to carry this pole and grind wheat like an animal. 
all these times, and, and he was just broken and humbled in this grinding mill. I don't know how long that lasted, but there's a verse of hope. It's so obscure, but I think about it often. Judges 16.22 says, but the hair of his head began to grow. His bitter circumstances, in that bitterness of pushing, hope grew at the rate of his hair growing. I don't know much about that because my hair doesn't grow very well, but, but Samson's situation, hope grew within him at that rate of speed at which his hair grows and, until the point where as, his, as a blind man led into uh, uh, the false temple of a false god with all the Philistines there, he, he just prayed one big prayer, God, Use me one last time, and, and God filled him with power one more time. But hope started in that little way, in the midst of his bitter circumstances. Now look back at Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3, the book describes lamenting, which is pouring out your heart with weeping and experiencing the fullness of your desperate circumstances. Lamentations 3 says, I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again all day long. He makes my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. You see the picture he's painting here? I mean, he is completely surrounded by darkness, emptiness, and he feels the hand of God is on him. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 7, he has walled me around so that I can't even get away from my misery. He's so stuck, he can't get away. He has made my chains heavy, even though I cry and I call out for help. It's he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones, and he has made all my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion hiding. He has turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces, and he has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. Jeremiah is describing the worst of circumstances, and he's attributing it to the sovereignty of God, and he's sitting in it. He's lamenting his situation. Verse 13, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver so that I have become the laughingstock of all the people, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, I don't have anything left. My endurance has perished. And all my hope is gone from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. If we stop at verse 19, that's where Naomi is. She's in the junk. But look what Jeremiah does. I mean, you see these verses on a coffee cup. We love these verses, but, but you don't often see it in its context. Jeremiah's soul, Naomi's soul, your soul, the soul of one of your friends, somebody you love, they're in this bitter place, and this is the way out. This is the doorway out of that. Verse 21, Jeremiah says, in the midst of all that, 
But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. There is no hope anywhere else. And it wasn't until he found the bitterness of his circumstances and stopped trusting and looking for another way out of it all that he finally said, locked in on the Lord and said, you are my hope. It is only in you that I have any hope. Therefore, I will hope in him. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What are you hoping in? What do you hope is going to happen? That's going to change your life. That's going to change your circumstances. That's going to change your misery. That's going to, that's going to change. If you're looking to anything other than the Redeemer, you're looking in a false place that will only prolong your situation and only prolong your bitterness. If you stay there and your hope is not placed rightly in Jesus Christ, there is no hope out of it. The last thing I'll say is that we have an opportunity to look to the Redeemer. That verse, meditate on it. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Naomi has a redeemer. He doesn't know it. I mean, we know it because we've read Ruth chapter 2. But just the very next thing, very next verse, 2-1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man whose name was Boaz, and he's called the redeemer. He's going to redeem the situation. There's good news for Naomi. She gets out of it. Ruth gets out of it. Read the rest of the book. There is redemption. 3.12, and now it is true that I am the Redeemer. Isn't that a beautiful picture? In the midst of the junk, she can look to the Redeemer. Naomi has a Redeemer. Ruth has a Redeemer. Job, in the midst of his bitter circumstances, Job 19.25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. You don't have to stay where you are. You may have to stay there a while, but there is a Redeemer and there's hope in Him. There's hope in Him. Our Father, Almighty God, we acknowledge that at times we can't make sense of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. When we thought that there was hope years ago, we look up and realize that we're still where we were. We realize that we, 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 we might still be in bitter circumstances. We might still be in the, in the midst of a painful, bitter place. Would you help us to learn from Naomi to see that she expressed her lament in the context of her people, the people of God, the people of faith. They received her in a way that fostered hope. They point her her community, her family points her to the Redeemer in Boaz. And that it, by the end of the story, there is a redemptive story. Her name is pleasant again. Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace and the insight to see that our bitter circumstances that we're currently in are not permanent, but there's a way out 
as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. And that we are to look to him, knowing that our Redeemer lives, and that he shall again make himself known. Lord Jesus, I I lift up the person in the room or listening online who is overwhelmed by their bitter circumstances and identifies all too well with Naomi. I pray that you would let hope spring up and blossom in the midst of the bitterness of their situation, that they would see hope in you, Jesus, not in anything else, but only in you. I pray that you would bring hope. I pray that as the church, as the people of God, I pray that also that we would be a place not of religious people who are snarky and unredeemed, but those who are genuine Christ followers, those who have been born again, those who are regenerate in the room, that they would stick out so beautifully because they look just like Jesus in expressing and delivering grace and forgiveness and tenderness and kind-heartedness. Lord, I pray that you would let this be a We look to you, Christ, in Christ alone. Amen.